Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. My name is Kerstin Lose-Friedrich. I'm the Director of Communications at Merrick's. And today I want to talk about China's financial diplomacy. Three and a half years ago, the Beijing-initiated Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, or AIIB, was founded. Much was written about China being the driving force behind this bank. I want to discuss what happened since then and which role China really plays in the AIIB with Gregory Chin. Gregory is a former Canadian diplomat and an associate professor in the Department of Political Science at York University and a leading expert on the AIIB. Gregory, thanks for joining me and discussing with me the drawbreaker AIIB. Please tell me in one minute, what is the primary purpose of the bank? The primary purpose of the bank is to provide a financial support for both uh, public and private infrastructure projects in Asia and in parts of the world connecting with Asia. If you should characterize it, what are the main points you would call? Yeah, so the main points is that it's a multilateral development bank with 100 members as of July 2019 uh, and with a uh, capital of $100 billion. And so it is um, a significant bank, both in membership in the uh, investment capacity uh, and, uh, and in its purpose. What motivated the Chinese government to create this bank? I think it's a combination of motivations. There's a set of motivations, not one, just one motivation. I think the Chinese, um, could, the, the Chinese were aware that other countries in the Asian region needed help with their infrastructure. And the Chinese had um, built up a lot of capacity steel, construction materials, um, engineering skill from their projects inside China. And they knew that their neighbors in Asia and beyond could use some help. So one thing I think is that the Chinese wanted to help others in the region. At the same time, uh, this, th these types of projects would allow China to export some of its excess capacity. So that would also be a, a benefit uh, for China. Uh, a third thing is that Uh, China and a number of the other uh, major emerging economies, major developing economies, had been somewhat dissatisfied uh, with the existing Bretton Woods uh, institutions. And especially coming out of the global financial crisis, 2008-2009, there was a lot of thought about the need to reform the system. And um, I think there was some frustration on the part of the Chinese and others about the slow pace of reform of those Bretton Woods institutions, And so the thought was given to whether new institutions needed to be created. And so I think the AIB, along with the BRICS-led New Development Bank, along with Belt and Road Initiative, uh, these can all be thought of as uh, kind of second-order responses uh, to the global financial crisis from China. There was written a lot on the Asian Infrastructure and Investment Bank before it was founded. And many people claim the bank is headquartered in China's capital. The Board of Governors is chaired by the Chinese Finance Minister. The management team is headed by a Chinese national mm -hmm. as president of the bank. And Chinese nationals hold the key staff positions across the various departments of the bank. So how can the bank serve as an example of multilateralism? Right. So there, were, there, there was a lot of concern that this bank would be a China-dominated multilateral development bank. And part of that is 
um, because of the factors that you cited, obviously China has a very strong imprint, uh, both in the formation of the bank and in its operation. Um, and at the same time, I also should have mentioned that China has it gains as far as foreign policy by having this bank. And so th- there's there has been this current concern about Chinese influence. At the same time, and I and I think there is some reason to under, you know to 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 uh, appreciate where the concern comes from. At the same time, I think the Chinese, or at least the Ministry of Finance, which is the key interlocutor of the Chinese government with this bank, they are also aware of these concerns. Also, they are of the view that in order for this bank to be successful, part of the success will be defined by whether that bank has operational autonomy, can actually act like a professional bank, can make professional banking type decisions, even though it's multilateral development banking, and whether it has the space to operate as a multilateral institution. And so I think the awareness on the part of the Chinese officials that are involved leads them to to exercise some self-restraint. And so I think we've seen some of that self-restraint exercised in three dimensions. One, during the negotiations over the formation of the bank, there was a lot of give and take between the original Chinese design for this bank, as we understand it, and what the bank eventually looked like. And one of the key drivers of those changes was the Europeans joining. And so a number of European countries joining, which was somewhat unexpected at first by the Chinese. But those European countries, they also brought their own concerns uh, to the discussions. And one of them was environmental and social impact. And so the bank now has relatively high standards by global uh, best practices. Um, And so I think in that way, you see the give and take between China and the other Asian members and the European members. Um, Also, the Chinese have supported this new bank, AIB, to partner with the World Bank, Asian Development Bank, European Investment Bank, EBRD, a number of other existing multilateral development banks. So through those partnerships, you can see how this bank is being kind of incorporated or integrated into the so-called family of multilateral development banks, right? As far as the rules, the norms, the standards, because in those cooperation agreements, they have to work together on a shared set of standards. And the AIB has often entered those agreements, accepting the standards of the others. And so that's two levels of multilateral cooperation. A third is this new mechanism called the Multilateral Cooperation Center for Development Finance, where China's Ministry of Finance and eight multilateral development banks, including AIB, are together working on projects of shared interest regarding infrastructure connectivity and economic integration and to increase the transparency and the sustainability of those projects in the area of infrastructure. There's a debate about how much of that activity will be linked to Belt and Road Initiative or not. But that's another platform, multilateral platform, where China supported AIB to act multilaterally. Let's stay for a second with the members of the bank. You mentioned already now the bank has 100 members, yeah. which is a huge success in itself. Germany is one of them, and they held like um, 
4.2% of the bank. You just came to Berlin because you also presented at the Federal Ministry of Finance. What is their assessment of the development of the AIB? Right. Well, I should be careful not to speak on behalf of the Federal Ministry of Finance of Germany, but my general sense is that the European constituency and, 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 and the German authorities, I think there's a general feeling that the bank has been progressing well, that in its short lifespan, only three and a half years so far, uh, but it's already been making a lot of progress. In some respects, more progress than many people expected, especially the critics or the skeptics. And so if you look at the, not only the membership, where it's increased from 57 to 100 within three years, but also the number of projects. It's gone from zero to, I think it's about 47 projects now, almost 50 projects in three years. And then it's lending an investment in those projects from zero to eight, somewhere between eight and a half and $12 billion dollars now. That's significant in three and a half years. And so I think from the standpoint of the German authorities, It, the bank has been making a lot of progress in these areas. At the same time, my sense is that for the European constituency and European members, they also believe, though, there's still room for the bank to make improvement on, for example, environmental and social sustainability. And so there, there are concerns from Europe and elsewhere that, you know, the bank can improve as far as climate change, green agenda. And, and I think the AIB senior management is aware of this, and they are dedicated to moving forward in these areas and trying to uh, push push further uh, as well. So I think in, in, in that respect, they, the, the general feeling is that the bank is operating well, uh, and, and as well as from a transparency standpoint and oversight. You know, they, I think there's also a feeling that things could still be somewhat improved as far as uh, board and senior management relationships. But overall, general level of, I think, fair to say, satisfaction. Japan and the United States right. are still not a member. Um, and they are the only G7 members who have not joined the AIB right. yet. How did their position change since it was founded? And do you think they might join the AIB in the future? It's a great question. I think the United States probably doesn't make sense for the United States to join. The, the AIB and the Chinese have offered the welcoming hand to both the United States and Japan. But the United States, I think, is very um, hesitant, reticent about joining. Um, and part of that, um, I think, has to do with um, where the U.S. and China sit right now as far as overall relations. But I think as well, the United States sees itself uh, as a major player, obviously, in the World Bank and the IMF and the Bretton Woods institutions. And as the Uh, custodian of the uh, liberal international order, even if the current administration may not speak in, in these terms or may not be as oriented. But I think if we think about the United States from a bipartisan standpoint, and historically, the Americans, it, it, I don't see the Americans looking to join. At the same time, the Americans are engaging, sometimes indirectly, sometimes directly. Um, The, the AIIB has made an effort to meet with U.S. Treasury uh, when it was being formed uh, and henceforth as well. And so the AIB's the senior management has tried to keep the Americans informed of what's going on. With Japan, I think there are some interesting dynamics. The Asian Development Bank, 
in which we tend to think of the longer established regional development bank in Asia, the Japanese are understood by most people to be the influential actor in the ADB. And Tokyo's initial response to the creation of the AIIB was skepticism, warning others about whether this new China-backed bank would be uh, meeting international standards or not. But it, it turns out that both the World Bank and the Asian Development Bank have now looked to engage constructively with the AIB. Um, and so I think even that required Tokyo to kind of acquiesce to the ADB working more constructively with the AIB. But that doesn't mean I don't think, like, that doesn't necessarily mean that Tokyo's looking to join the AIIB. So that may also be a step too far. However, if I was to hazard to guess on the two, which might join potentially over the medium term, by that I mean 10 to 20 years, it would probably be Japan. Okay, that's interesting. One topic we have to talk about is the AIIB and the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, I quote Jin Li Chun, the Chinese president of the AIIB. He described the bank and the Belt and Road Initiative as being twin engines of an aircraft, where both are needed for the aircraft to fly smoothly and high. How close are the BRI and the AIIB, according to your assessment, mm, I think in the beginning, when the bank was just being formed, around 2013, 2014, I think the Chinese, and perhaps Jin Li Chun, and the Chinese leaders probably thought of the relationship between the two, AIB and Belt and Road, as fairly close. But I think over time, they've, um, especially the AIB, has put a bit of distance between itself and Belt and Road. That doesn't, it doesn't mean complete separation. Obviously, these two ventures were launched at the same time, more or less, by the Chinese authorities. And so Jin Li Chun acknowledges that they are like two engines on, on an aircraft. Um, at the same time, I think Jin Li Chun smartly, diplomatically, um, is aware of sensitivities within the AIB. For example, India uh, is not a participant in Belt and Road. And yet India is the largest recipient of AIB loans so far, if you count go by number of projects. And so India is uh, very enthusiastic about AIB but not so not enthusiastic about Belt and Road. And so this is where I think it makes sense for AIB to put a little bit of distance between itself and Belt and Road. And so I think it now makes sense that we can see where the Chinese, as well as uh, the heads of the AIB, uh, talk about some distance there. And that at the same time, from my view, I think there's inevitably some overlap between these two initiatives because both of them deal with infrastructure. Both of them deal with connectivity in the region. So it's inevitable there will be some overlap. But I think the question is for the AIB, it's not that um, as long as it's Belt and Road, we will support it. I think it's if it's Belt and Road, let's look very carefully at it. Under what conditions, when, where, how, why, would we get involved in this Belt and Road project? And if we get involved, who else is involved? including potentially other multilaterals. This is that MCDF that we talked about. Mm -hmm. All right, so that could be, you know, one way in which you can distribute some of the, um, you can multilateralize some of the cooperation. So it's not just the AIB singly on the, a Belt and Road project. That would make sense to me. 
for China, it's a huge investment to be the driving force behind the bank, isn't it? Yes, it is. I think it is a it is a sizable investment. Uh, uh, $29.8 billion. Um, it is sizable. But if you think about it relative to China's overall uh, foreign currency reserve, it's not that much. And so I think that's where China has the luxury still of having a very large foreign currency reserve. Of course, other people talk about growing debt in China. But nonetheless, the fiscal capacity of the Chinese state appears still to be very strong, large reserve. So I think that for China, this is a, a smart investment because it allows China to have this experiment and where China gets to uh, work on being a multilateral actor. I think this is a big challenge for China, actually, because China's not used to being the leader of a multilateral institution. It's joined other multilateral institutions, UN, World Bank, Asian Development Bank, but where it's the actual leader of a new multilateral institution, creating shared norms, shared values, collective wins, global public goods. This is another level of challenge for, I think, China. And so I think this is a very important vehicle for China to experiment with this. Mm. To what extent would you say is the AIB also part of China's broader strategy to upgrade the status of the UN um, as an international reserve currency? That, that's a good question. I think so far the AIB has only done US dollar operations. Uh, and the only leeway for, for like local currency or foreign other currency use has been for countries if they want to make part of their paid in contribution to join the bank they can do part of that in local currency but it's up to the AIB to decide the exchange rate so that's but that's a kind of technical detail what you're getting at i think is the question of whether china would use the AIB, whether the AIB will start doing RMB lending for example um, projects where it, it invests in our using RMB. The AIB said that this year, in the second half of 2019, they intend to do some local currency loans for projects. But so far, we're talking about countries such as Thailand, um, potentially Indonesia, maybe Turkey, India. India is supposed to be one of the key sites. So far, they haven't mentioned RMB. Now, further down the road, could there be renminbi? I think there is definitely a possibility. Mm -hmm. That would probably, though, start with AIB lending to China on a project. And then it would probably be in renminbi. I don't see it necessarily being a project where the uh, AIB is lending to another country using RMB. Unless, potentially, it's a project that involves Hong Kong or Singapore, which also act as RMB hubs, offshore RMB hubs. Right, so that could be interesting. So, yeah, it, it it is something that I think AIB will think about for the future. So far, RMB lending, they've been very cautious. They haven't been involved. Gary, you published also on governance and innovation within the bank. Um, how much should the governments get involved and stand up to the AIB to carry out needed actions and reforms? What would you say? Well, it's a new institution so far, and so I think everyone is trying to figure out, for example, this non-resident executive, uh, this non-resident board of directors. 
Um, so the AIB has three levels of governance. You have the board of governors at the top that deal with the big strategic, big policy decisions of the bank that deal with the big questions relating to what is the bank, what will it be doing, that kind of thing. Then you have the board of directors. The board of directors is overseeing, supervising the management about the running of the bank, the actual operations of the bank and, and how the bank implements. Um, and then you have the senior management and the staff. And I think so far, a lot of the discussion has been whether the um, Chinese national, Jin Li Chun, the president of this AIB, what's his relationship with the board of directors? To what degree there's proper oversight and supervision and things like that. And so I think so far, everyone's trying to learn how to operate within this scenario and where you have this non-resident board of directors. So if I, from what I can tell, some countries are probably um, adapting maybe better than others, but it's, I think it's, it's, it's still kind of early and everyone's trying to figure out how this board of directors works. You have a number of constituencies. Some are within the region of Asia, some are outside the region of Asia. A lot of the, um, delicate work so far has been trying to figure out who will chair each constituency. In some cases, it's natural, like you can have Germany and France, you know, rotating chair for the Euro constituency. But there's one constituency that is kind of um, uh, interesting, which is, I think, seven African countries with Canada as the chair. <laughs> and you can imagine this is somewhat delicate for Canada to have to manage. Um, if you think about traditional north-south type tensions. And so even that type of dynamic, I come from Canada and I, I've had the honor of uh, talking with the, um, the Canadian chair uh, and director on, on, on the board. You know, this is something that where uh, he's had to think through very carefully you know, to visit the countries in Africa, to talk with those African uh, member states, to really listen to them about what, what, would they, what do they want? Um, what would they like to see from the AIB? Some of them have already, like Egypt, taken, they've already taken large loans, but some of the African countries haven't taken any loans yet or have just recently joined. They've been somewhat slower in joining. So for the Canadian chair in that situation, I think it's a very delicate and uh, important role to play, trying to represent the interests of those African countries at the board when the board of directors meet at the AIB. So I think those are some of the interesting things in the first three years is just as it gets up and going, how to, how to make it all work from a functional standpoint. So, Greg, three and a half years of huge success. What kind of challenges will the AIIB face in the future? Yeah, I think one of the challenges coming down the road is this bank, this expanded membership. When it was launched with 57 members, I think the balance between the Asian members within the region and the non-regional, there were more Asian. Yeah, now it's almost straight up 50-50 as far as I, I understand it between Asian regional and non-regional. And so the question is, in a situation where this Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank still uh, has in its rules that 75% of its lending must be inside the Asian region, that doesn't leave that much for outside the region, if you think about it, in, in those terms. Um, 
And so the question is, is will this bank moving forward get more demands from the non-regional members for support? And if that's the case, how do they rebalance um, if they were to do that? Now, there's, there are logical arguments for why not to expand the, the lending to non-regionals. One could argue, well, we already have African Development Bank. We have uh, Inter-American Development Bank. Right? Those banks are already there uh, managing development lending to those regions. We don't need this bank to also be lending to those other regions. You know, this bank has Asia in its name. Maybe it should stay focused on the Asian region. And I can understand that argument. At the same time, this bank has now moved up into the stratosphere of the World Bank. It has 100 members where you have 50-50, regional and non-regional. It is now somewhat like you could argue a global development bank and then the question is should it better reflect that and so i think this is going to be an ongoing discussion and debate within its membership moving forward the identity of this bank its purpose what makes it different than the world bank that's going to be definitely one area of ongoing discussion for this bank so a lot to follow for you Gregory, thanks a lot. I talked to Gregory Chin, Associate Professor at York University and one of the leading AIIB experts in the world. Thank you for joining me. My name is Kerstin Lose-Friedrich from Merix. Bye-bye. Thank you. You have been listening to Merix Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merix.org.